Trooper Alfred and the Team One of Brass from Karst Sestouli. And what we're looking at here, you, both you and I, is a, another edition of Fangraphs Audio featuring uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron, who is here uh, for our pleasure to analyze all World Series. To, well, to analyze all of this particular World Series. In fact, uh, the World Series has started. Uh, game one was played Wednesday night. I'm recording this on a Thursday. Game one was played Wednesday night. Uh, Boston, the, the Red Sox of Boston defeated the Cardinals of St. Louis by a score of 8-1. to one. That's the indisputable fact. The equally indisputable, I would argue, equally indisputable uh, is the quality of analysis that Dave Cameron provides about that self-same World Series in the conversation that follows. It's a conversation that I had minutes ago, literally minutes ago. The turnaround here is uh, non-pare in terms of turnarounds go for podcasts. Uh, it's a conversation I had minutes ago with Dave Cameron asking about game one, but the uh, how the Red Sox score the runs, Cardinals defense, umpiring. And then we get even into some other categories. And there's a lot of Shane Robinson talk because it is uh, it's basically a truth in the baseball podcast community if you can't if you can't work if you can't shoehorn some Shane Robinson conversation into your broadcast you can't expect listeners that's the truth now i mean so we're just driving traffic uh, with more and more Shane Robinson related conversation it is fangraphs audio it does feature fangraphs managing editor Dave Cameron and it begins right now Shane Robinson Good. Were you thinking about when I just called, or just before I called, were you meditating deeply on Tom, Tommy Tommy Lestella's future as a major leaguer? Uh, no, no, I was not. I'm actually writing a post uh, describing how the Red Sox performance last night was one of the worst in baseball history for a team that scored as many runs as they did. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's curious. Yeah, they Isn't actually that, had the the lowest on base percentage in major league postseason history for a team that scored eight runs. Really? And so, yeah. how did they score? I mean, they still scored all the runs. They scored all the runs because the Cardinals' defense was atrocious, and they bunched their hits together. So basically, the the Cardinals got beaten by their own poison because the Cardinals have been beating everyone with runners in scoring position hitting all year long. And game one of the World Series, the Red Sox shoved that down their throats. Yeah, right. And uh, well, that's a thing that. I suppose we know typically isn't repeatable, but might be repeatable at the extremes. And but, uh, what, what, probably what, not a skill. Well, I think what we know is that good hitters do well when there are men on base and bad hitters do not. And so if you have a bunch of good hitters, you're probably going to be better than that than the average. And both the Red Sox and Cardinals have good hitters. Right. Well, hey, here's the thing. I know that uh, obviously it was especially after the Grand Slammy hit during the whatever series that was. Um, there were a lot. Of, a lot of voices uh, all saying something to the effect that David Ortiz is an excellent hitter in the clutch. Um, David Ortiz is an excellent hitter in the clutch, I assume, because he's an excellent hitter generally or ha- and has been over the course of his career, I mean. Right, and and I actually I think if you look at it historically, David, David Ortiz is not actually an amazing hitter in the clutch relative to his own performance. I think uh, in the postseason, he's been amazing, absolutely, uh, and there's been some really big moments, but... He's been amazing in the postseason because he's been amazing in the regular season. Like, there's not this huge, uh, 
difference in in performance. Like there's like say Carlos Beltran where he just you know turns into a superhuman you know offensive machine in October. Uh, Ortiz is awesome all the time, including the postseason. Right. Yeah. I, I believe. I mean, when I checked, I don't know a week ago maybe his line was uh, almost precisely uh, in the postseason what it has been during the regular season. Ortiz. Right, which is actually more impressive because you are facing better pitchers in the postseason. You're not getting the fifth starters. You're not getting the lame middle relievers. You're going to get platooned, uh, platoon matchups more frequently as, as managers are going to be more aggressive with their bullpen matchups. Uh, obviously the teams that get to postseason probably have better pitchers than teams who don't. So, you know, putting up the exact same line in the postseason is, is more impressive than it is in the regular season, but it's not like Ortiz hits 250 in the regular season and 500 in the postseason. I mean, he's just really good all the time. Wait, so would you say so so essentially like every any playoff game it's it's not played with a with a like a a leverage index of 1, right? It's played with the I don't know. You know, it's like 4 like is the basic is the base or 16 or something. I think right. Dave uh, Studman did some work on this. Yeah. Um but so essentially and, and as you know, like managers manage as though they're almost they're playing like innings seven through nine of a of a closeish game during the regular season. I mean, is that a fair comparison? Well, I don't think they they all do that all the time, especially in the early rounds. I think we've seen managers stick with starting pitchers a little too long, uh, and you know they, they, some of them are a little more conservative than others. But overall, I mean, I don't think there's any question that that managers do take things a little. Uh, more seriously in the postseason, they do manage a little bit different. You're you're more likely to get pitching changes. Uh, you know, even last night we saw Janichi Tazawa come in to protect an eight-run lead, which you know <laughs> prob- probably wouldn't happen in the regular season. Right. Uh, although Ryan Dempster was the one to close it out, which was uh... right. I mean, they only let Tazawa get one out, but it was you know a little odd that they went to Tazawa up eight nothing in the eighth inning anyway. Right. Um, That's the postseason for you. Yeah, I guess right. Uh, let's see. Um, so, so you're writing about how the Red Sox did this. Um, I mean, is that more? I guess you look for. You say like, is this is that the Red Sox doing that? Is that more about the Red Sox or is it more about the Cardinals? What, yeah, I, I think other? I think last night it was more about the Cardinals. I mean, you know, nothing to take away from the Red Sox. Obviously, Mike Napoli hit the ball really hard to score three runs, and David Ortiz hit a home run. Like, you know, they did some things on their own that were beneficial to their to their cause. But the Cardinals lost that game. I mean, they played atrocious defense. Uh, you know, Cosma dropping the ball on Carpenter's poor flip when he was too far away from second base. Uh, you know, David Fries, uh not being able to get to a couple balls, uh, several errors. Shane Robinson booting, kind of booting the ball on uh, Napoli's double, allowing Ortiz to score from first. Uh, Cosma dropping a ball in the hole. Uh, there was just a lot of really, you know, Wainwright and Molina staring at each other on that infield fly. There was a lot of really atrocious defense from the Cardinals last night that gave the Red Sox uh, extra base runners, extended innings. Uh, you know, I think with a better defensive performance, that game is probably pretty close. Well, we talked about this during the um, the, the various LCSs, which was of the, the uh, three of the four teams remaining, and not including the Red Sox, had at some level, at I guess, you know, at, uh, a couple of positions notably, uh, sacrifice defense in favor of offense. Right. I think the Red Sox were kind of the defensive specialists of the series, uh, or of the of the remaining uh, final four, at least. Uh, and last night, I think, you know, uh, the interesting thing about it is the guys who were really bad defenders on the Cardinals weren't the ones who were screwing up royally. I mean, Pete Cosma, probably the Cardinals' best defensive player, he's really only in there for his glove, uh, made two pretty spectacularly bad plays, 
the first one being more egregious than the second. But, you know, he, he, his glove was not up to par last night. Uh, and Carlos Beltran, who, you know, UZR thought was maybe one of the worst defensive outfielders in all of baseball this year, made like a really nice catch on David Ortiz's would-be grand slam. Uh, it cost him to have to lead the game. But, you know, the fact that, uh, that Beltran was a, a significant liability in the field for the Cardinals this year didn't show up last night. And the fact that Cosmo was supposed to be a pretty good defender and, you know, had played steady shortstop all year for the Cardinals also didn't show up last night. So, you know, there's definitely some narrative here to where they say, oh, the Cardinals were a bad defensive team. They got what they deserved, except for the guys making bad plays where they're good defenders. Hey, here's a question, though, with regard to the, the Beltran, um, Shane Robinson uh, thing. There was in the fifth inning, the bottom of the fifth, this was after uh, Beltran had exited um, and John Jay has entered in center and Shane Robinson is at right field. Uh, Dustin Bedroya hits a, I think you could, I think you could reasonably call it a fliner uh, yeah. down the right field line and Robinson yeah. just gets to it. Yeah. Uh, is that a ball, is that a ball to which Carlos Beltran gets to be supposed? I don't think so. I think yeah. that Robinson made a play that Beltron would not, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It also caused me to look I, – I looked at him before, but uh, sort of review Shane Robinson's – not just uh, – maybe not just his um, – not just his 2013 stats necessarily, but uh, what he's done generally and you know, also in the minor leagues. He is not a bad ball player, actually. Shane, well, uh, yeah, Shane I mean, he's a, he's a very nice bench player. You probably don't want him starting for you in the World Series. Like, the, you know, the fact that he – that he had to start for them last night is a little bit of a problem and suggests that maybe the Cardinals uh, should look for a new center fielder. Uh, but as a, you know, fourth outfielder, reserve, uh, fill-in, pinch runner, defensive replacement, you know, you can certainly do worse. Yeah, and he's, I mean, he's posted crazy uh, um, walk-to-strikeout numbers. Right. Uh, and uh, I guess he doesn't, he didn't hit the ball over the fence a lot. Um, although I guess, I guess he did during the, the LCS. Yeah, during the LCS. Yeah, I think with uh, guys like Robinson, you have to be careful uh, when they're in the National League and see how many of the walks came when he was hitting eighth. I would imagine a decent amount of them, he's going to be the kind of guy who hits eighth in the National League a lot. Uh, a Wait, so is he, are, is he Craig Gentry essentially? Uh, Gentry is better, I think. Gentry is a, a better defender and probably a slightly better hitter. Okay. Um, he's that kind of player, but I, I wonder, uh, you put, take him away from hitting directly in front of the pitcher, how many walks he would lose and what that would do to his on-base numbers. And since that's really his only offensive skill, what that would do to his offensive value overall. Right. Yeah. Of course, Craig Gentry doesn't know the pitch. Craig Gentry had a crazy season too, it turns he out. He had a, a three-win season in like 250 plate appearances. <laughs> in fact, yeah, over the last two years, this is crazy. If anyone, well, you could really go back three years if you want. Um, if if you buy a computer uh, or have uh, some manner of uh, internet access, otherwise, uh, do do consider uh, regarding uh, Craig Gentry's player profile page at, at Fangraphs. He's been worth uh, he's been worth over six wins um, over his last uh, just you know, 550 plate appearances. Right. I mean, a lot of that is because he's used as a defensive replacement, and so he's racking up defensive value even in games where he doesn't hit. So it's not. Uh, in the, in his case, 550 plate appearances not equal to 160 games. Right, 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 right. It's right. probably equal to like seven or, you know, some, some larger quantity of plate appearances, uh, once you factor in the defensive chances he gets in games where he doesn't hit. Right, but even, even six wins over, six wins over two seasons is strong. It's better than yeah, Delman right. Young has ever done. <laughs> uh, Craig, Craig Gentry deserves a starting job in the major leagues. I mean, I think he's one of the more underrated players. He's kind of like a poor man's Peter Burgess a little bit. 
you know, I think if, some, if someone just gave him 500 bats and stuck him in the center field, they would be kind of happy with what he did. Yeah, interesting. And now, uh, so we, we, we've called, wait, so there's a lot of poor men here. There's, yeah. <laughs> Craig Gentry is the poor man's Peter Burgess. Yeah. Burgess, Burgos. Uh, Burgess, yeah. Uh, Shane Robinson is the poor man's Craig Gentry. Right. Um, what, what, what is it, uh, I mean, is this, are they all the poor men's Brett Gardner? Uh, that's, you know, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, Burgess and Gardner aren't, I mean, Gardner's probably a better hitter in that he has better play discipline and doesn't strike out quite as much. Um, but yeah, I think they're all kind of from that same family. Uh, maybe I would say more along the lines of like a poor man's, um, Tom Goodwin, if we were going to go back that far. Wait, was the, Goodwin that good? Tom Goodwin was a pretty solid center fielder. You know, he didn't get on base, but he stole a lot of bases, and he was efficient. And I think okay. he was, you know, like a two or three win player at his peak. There's a not, so who's the who's the slightly more affluent, like Peter Burgess then? Is there? Is, is there uh, I don't know, Carlos Gomez maybe. I mean, because then you're adding power. I mean, Burgess has a little bit of power. Uh, okay. I'm just I trying mean, to understand you know, the socioeconomic categories that exist right. in, in baseball. Yeah, I mean, I think at some point you say, okay, if we're looking for plus defensive center field, fast, uh, kind of have same offensive skill set, at that point you kind of have to be adding power. So I'd say Gomez is maybe like the the best that skill set gets. Okay. And uh, that concludes this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Is Shane Robinson, <laughs> Shane Robinson only, uh, has been considered. That's good. Um uh, yeah, so well, you you mentioned uh, the Red Sox. Uh, now they scored their runs in uh, in almost precisely the same fashion that uh, St. Louis has all year. Uh, I I feel like it deserves to be discussed, um, if, if however briefly, the the way um, that the uh, the reversal of the call at second base went yesterday. Um, during the first inning, Matt Carpenter throws the ball to P. Cosma. P. Cosma uh, doesn't catch it. Data Demuth says uh, he lost it on the the transition. Um, the other uh, umpires are saying, well, maybe not so much. After John Farrell has, um, you know, sort of appealed it, I guess, to the degree that 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 is a thing that can happen, and uh, the call's overturned. This is a uh, that's kind of how you want umpiring to go, no? Yeah, no, right. I think, like, uh, despite the fact that this took longer than an instant replay would have, and everyone complains that replay would have slowed the game down and should have watched last night and how long that took. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think if we're not going to have replay, uh, uh, you know, which we don't right now, this is the best we can hope for, is the umpires getting together and being like, hey man, you blew it, like, let's swallow your pride and get the call right. Uh, you know, I think this is a good example of the umpires doing the right thing. Uh, and you know, I think it was interesting, and Joe Torrey was talking to Ken Rosenthal during the broadcast and said, you know, like the umpires will actually have a signal for each other where it wasn't Demuth asking for help, but the other umpires just came to him and was like, we have a concern about your call. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I think it's nice that the, uh, the other umpires, uh, didn't, you know, consider that standing their fellow brother up or something where they went to him and were like, you, you missed this one. We would like to help you. Uh, that's the kind of culture of umpiring I think, you know, Major League Baseball should want to foster. And hopefully, uh, you would even get the umpires to see replay as kind of a technological help, uh, in the same way. Where, um, you know, the only goal should really be getting the call right. Uh, everything else is just a sideshow. Um, and if, you know, whether it's the umpires converging on each other and, and kind of overruling one of their fellow lumps or, Using a, a camera to look at it and get a second second opinion, uh, this should all be considered assistance to help them do their job better. And I think you know, last night, kudos to the umpires for um, you know 
gathering together and saying that was not a good call, Dana. Right, and there was so much uh, transparency regarding it afterwards, I feel like. Because Dana DeMuth, Dana DeMuth, I, I actually, I really appreciated his explanation. He said, he said where I kind of lost it was I was looking at the foot. Right. You know, he was kind of trying to guard against just calling the neighborhood play. Right. Uh, and he said, and that's why I missed, that's why I missed the transaction between. And at a certain level, you can kind of excuse it because he's assuming that it's a major league second baseman throwing to yeah. a major league shortstop. They catch the ball. Right. Right. And so you say, this is a thing they do. A thing they frequently don't do is touch second base when they catch the ball. Right. Uh, like we saw, was it the, the LCS with Steven Drew's double play? Yeah. Uh, way way out. 20 feet from the bag. Yeah. yeah, right. And so, and, and so you, you know, you don't necessarily expect that, but then, uh, and then Hirschbeck, uh, you heard him. I think you could hear him over his, uh, ump's mic. Wasn't that right? Uh, is that yeah. right? Where he says, right. listen, we're just trying to get it right. Yeah. I asked everyone. They all said 100%. We did. That's, it was, it was just very, there was a lot of transparency, a lot of honesty about it. And I think it makes them to, to, to me personally as a viewer makes, makes me trust them more. Right. It was well handled. I, I mean, I will note that John Herspeck knew he was wearing a mic and all the other umpires knew he was wearing a mic. So my guess is their conversation might have been slightly different had there not been a microphone there. Uh, and they, they knew that Fox wasn't going to a couple innings later cut to audio of what they said. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think anytime you put a recorder in the room, it always changes what, what people say. So, uh, you know, kudos to the umpires for what they did last night. Absolutely. They did a good job. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily what happens every time there's one of these plays in Major League Baseball. Well, so maybe is the secret just to have uh, the umps mic'd up all the time? It's not a terrible idea, to be honest. I mean, yeah. there's so many of these uh, confrontations where, you know, historically you've had, say, you know, a player accuse the umpire of saying uh, a racist thing or, you know, to make some kind of comment that is, uh, you know, instigation-ol, uh, instigating. Instigatory? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the word would be, right? Yeah. Anyway, that word, uh, <laughs> if we just, you know, recorded all the conversations that umpires had and, you know, had an intern listen to them after the game and flagged, like, really awful comments that were, uh, you know, should be reviewed, that might not be the worst thing ever. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There was, I did say, uh, oh yeah, we talked about, uh, Robinson Beltran. We talked about, uh, what, uh, people, uh, there's a lot of excitement surrounding Michael Waka. Who is starting uh, starting today's game? He's been kind of, I guess, amazing during the yeah. during the playoffs. Pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's really good at making sure the other team doesn't get hits, which is one of the, the best things you can do. Right. Um, he also doesn't walk anyone, which is nice. Okay, so that's another strong quality yeah. he has, I guess. Um, and he strikes a lot of people out. Right. So he's got. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, he has an xFIP below three uh, in his uh, three starts. He's striking yeah. out about. He's striking out nearly a third of batters facing. Walking yeah. only five percent of them. These are all good right. things. Yeah. Uh, so, like, um, this happens sometimes, right? Where a young a young starter uh, has not necessarily had tons of exposure. Uh, there's maybe not tons of video available on him. It, I mean, is is Waka's success do well? How how? Let's start with here. How different is it than the success that like Jared Wright had, maybe whatever ten fifteen years ago now? <laughs> Yeah, if I remember correctly, I mean, Jared Wright was definitely a, like considered a premium pitching prospect, and he came up and pitched pretty well for Cleveland. But if I remember correctly, Wright was walking a lot of guys in those games. I mean, this was you know a long time ago, so I could be remembering completely wrong, and maybe he dominated, and I'm just way off the mark. But I remember Jared Wright walking a lot of people and working out of a lot of jams. Walker is not doing that at all. Walker is basically dominating uh, from start to finish, and and not really kind of just 
uh, getting by on strand rate or Babbitt Bluck. I mean, this is just, you know, one pitcher blowing down every hitter he faces. Uh, th- I would say this is one of the more impressive runs of postseason pitching we've seen from a young pitcher in quite a while. And I think, you know, continues to serve to highlight the idea of the changeup is a really wildly underrated outpitch. Uh, Waka's changeup is very good. I mean, he throws a lot of fastballs too and his command is excellent, but his changeup is his best pitch, I think. And, uh, this is a kind of a knock on him coming up through the minors is, you know, uh, that he was kind of a mid-rotation starter because he didn't have a knockout breaking ball and the, you know, the focus and prospect evaluation seems to be very heavily on the breaking ball. Uh, when real, in reality, if you have a serviceable breaking ball or a two-seamer that can really get same-handed hitters out and your changeup is that big of a weapon against opposite-handed hitters, you can be pretty good. And I think, you know, Waka has reminded me very much of James Shields over the last couple of weeks where you watch him pitch and it's kind of the same idea of fastballs and changeups and really good command and ground balls. And, uh, you know, this is this can be, a you know, a top-10 starting pitcher even without a dynamite breaking ball, which Shields has never developed. Hey, what I ask about... Um... Um, of course, uh, Walker's a right-hander, and uh, that means that uh, uh, when Shane – well, it doesn't matter now at this point. It means Shane Victorino normally would have been batting left-handed against him. Right. Um, he won't be doing that because I don't think uh, Shane Victorino's batted left-handed since, what, July? Well, he did, it, he did it in one game in the, NL, in the ALCS right, right. Uh, for three at-bats and went 0 for 3 and decided that he would not do it again until next year. Right. Okay, so, so a thing with regard to that, though, is if I'm not mistaken – um, so, yeah, as a right-hander versus right-hander, uh, Shane Victorino had success in terms of his slash stats, um, yeah. during the regular season. Um, a lot of that was due to the fact that he had a higher BABIP than he usually does. It was about 350. He, he struck out almost 10 times as often as he did, uh, as a, uh, betting as a right-hander. Betting as a right-hander against right-hander against right-handed pitchers, he he struck out about ten times as often as he um, as he walked. Um, that's not necessarily promising in terms of forward projection, and yet the Red Sox uh, persist in, in and I guess Victorino himself persists in batting right-handed. Is it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, this, this seems is this something that's going to carry over to next year? Well, I think the, so. The problem here is looking at just like walk rate. Uh, in isolation, because Victorino's not walking because he's getting hit by so many pitches. I mean, you know, like as a right-handed hitter, he's getting hit 10% of the time. Like, oh yeah, not, that's, oh that yeah, not, not, that's crazy. Not just walking plus getting hit. Like his walk plus HBP percentage is something like 14% or something absurd because he gets beamed so often as a right-handed hitter. Uh, part of this is because he's like hanging over the plate and he doesn't really make an attempt to get out of the way. But this allows him to cover the plate fairly well. Uh, to where if pitchers are throwing kind of like that down and away slider, which is a, you know, very classic way to pitch a, a same-handed hitter, uh, if you're throwing a down and away slider, he can still reach it and he can pull it and he can pull it for power. And, uh, I think what we saw, uh, you know, off Jose Veras is Veras hung a curveball, uh, over the plate, but Victorino was able to sit back on it and crush the thing to left field. Uh, so, you know, I think his current approach as a right-handed hitter allows him to basically mash, uh, and pull pitches, uh, on the outer half. Uh, and then if you come inside, he's going to take it off the arm and take first base. So, uh, you know, is this long-term sustainable without him breaking an arm or you know, shoulder or causing a bunch of fights? I don't know, but, you know, it seems to be working pretty well. The, there was the uh, – I think Wainwright got a strike call yeah. on the inside corner yesterday, and, and Victorino well, – it ended with him laughing, but he was uh, – he had some words with John Hirschbeck. I don't – they weren't heated necessarily, but there were words. 
he was chirping, I think is the word that Jeff Sullivan <laughs> used in our game blog. But yeah, I mean, like, Victorino thought it was going to hit him, and it was actually on the inside corner for a strike. And, uh, a fairly common thing where Victorino's, like, flinching out of the way of pitches that are, you know, not very far from the strike zone and occasionally getting hit by pitches that are not all that far from the strike zone because he's basically right on top of the plate. Uh, and as long as he's willing to take the pain, there's not a lot pitchers can do about it. I mean, they can throw at him and try and move him off the plate and, you know, come up under his chin. Uh, but in the World Series, I don't know that you want to risk, you know, getting ejected or, uh, you know, starting a brawl to get someone injured. Like, you know, this is probably not the time to, to try and be relocating Shane Victorino in the batter's box. Uh, and, you know, I would imagine it's probably fairly frustrating to a right-handed pitcher to, you know, be able to throw a really well-located breaking ball down and away and have this guy can still pull the ball because of where he's standing in the box. Okay, so we know that it might sound strange to some people, but we, to a certain degree, getting hit by pitches is a skill, yes? Yeah, yes. And Victorino's done this his whole career. I mean, not nearly to the same extent, but he's been a hit-by-pitch guy. Right, and so because of this, you can make a case. Could you make a case that Victorino has been just as productive as a right-handed batter against right-handed pitchers as he was as a left-handed batter? I think more, actually. Okay. Like, traditionally, Victorino has not been very good from the left side. Okay. Uh, he, he's always been a good right-handed hitter against lefties and a mediocre hit left-handed hitter against righties. Well, so what I'm going to ask is, <clears throat> is there an argument, and maybe you've just, you just, with that comment, you, you Suggested not, but is there an argument for Shane Victorino becoming the first ever reverse switch hitter, where he 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 bats only right-handed against right-handed right-handed pitchers and bats left-handed against left-handed pitchers because his hit-by-pitch skill is so strong? No, because his <laughs> left-handed swing is very different than his right-handed swing. It is significantly worse. He's a natural righty, I believe. Okay, all right. Uh, and uh, I think what we've seen is Victorino is maybe an argument for switch hitting not being as useful as people might think. And, you know, maybe it's an overrated skill in where, you know, teams put a lot of value into having a guy who can switch hit. But if, uh, you know, that guy had just, you know, stayed a right-hander his entire career and gotten pretty good at hitting right-handed, hitting from the right side, maybe his career wouldn't have been that different. Maybe hitting left-handed, you know, in some percentage of his plate appearances didn't actually all help him all that much. Right. Did it hurt? Um, you know, it's a tough thing to say, right? Like, we have this really small, with a 200-at-bat sample late in his career. Uh, it, you know, it's tough to know what Shane Victorino would have done over thousands of plate appearances of right-handed against right-handers. We can kind of infer, uh, you know, talent against one side based on performance against the other side, right? Like, you know, you need larger samples. But if a guy crushes left-handed pitching, he's probably not totally useless against right-handed pitching. There's some, you know, it's still a swing. It's still kind of a pitch recognition. It's like the same base of skills, even if the ball is coming from a different angle. The fact that Victorino, as a right-handed hitter, was able to hit lefties so well suggests that his right-handed swing is kind of good. Uh, maybe he could have hit right-handed pitching as well or better than he did uh, as a left-hander. And, you know, I think there's at least an argument to be made that Shane Victorino – uh, didn't help himself and maybe hurt himself by switching his whole career. Okay, uh, I want to talk. I know this is we're, talk, we're supposed to be discussing exclusively World Series stuff. Um, I want to ask you about Tim Lincecum in one second. First, I need you to tell me who two different people are. Uh, who is Alexander Guerrero? He is a Cuban second baseman who signed with the Dodgers for twenty-eight million dollars over four years. Uh, and almost as is the case almost every time the Dodgers sign anyone. The reaction from other teams and, and people in the industry is, that's ridiculous. That guy's not worth anything near that. 
I think at this point, after Yasiel Puig and Hinjin Ryu, maybe the Dodgers get a little bit of a break here. They might be better at international scouting than everyone else. Okay, right. And so I assume this uh, means that uh, Mark Ellis will not be part of the team next year? Well, they, you know, Coletti uh, made a comment saying they still valued Ellis and they could still see a role for him. And Guerrero, you know, even though they gave him $9 million a year, he's still a little bit of an unknown. I don't know that you want to go in uh, to, you know, next season trying to win a World Series with a, you know, uh, a rookie prospect who people are skeptical of and no alternative. Ellis is, you know, not that expensive. I think they have a $5 million option on him for next year. He's a steady player. He probably wouldn't complain that much about being a reserve who played, you know, a couple days a week. Uh, I can see the Dodgers picking it up as kind of an insurance policy in case Guerrero is the next, uh, you know, Siyoki Nishioka. Okay. Uh, second question, uh, who is Brian Price? I, I know who he was, who he is. He's, he, he's now the, the Reds coach and, uh, he was their pitching coach, I believe. But who, what do we, what else do we know about him? Yeah, I mean, so he was the Mariners pitching coach back during the, uh, Lou Pavella era. Uh, he was the Arizona pitching coach under Bob Melvin when, when Melvin was there. Um, so he's been a pitching coach with several successful teams and now with Cincinnati. Uh, you know, their pitchers kind of blossomed under him. Uh, he's a, an intellectual, a well thought out guy. Uh, people have a lot of respect for him. Um, he's kind of been a rumored manager in, in training for, you know, probably 10, 15 years at this point. Um, so this is his first managerial shot, but he's always been kind of on the list of, of guys who, um, would graduate from pitching coach to manager someday. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, is there reason to believe that, um, uh, he's the sort who is more sympathetic to what the, that front office has been trying to do and, uh, maybe is the sort who wouldn't bet, um, uh, Zach Cozart second? Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, it's hard to know exactly where he falls on everything, but, I mean, Price was certainly pushing for a role as Chapman to be a starter, uh, during spring training when there was basically a battle of wills where it was the front office and Brian Price against Dusty Baker and a role as Chapman. Baker and Chapman both wanted Chapman in the ninth inning, and, and Price in the front office wanted him starting. Uh, I would imagine with Price as the manager now, there's a pretty decent chance that Chapman's going to get stretched out again next spring, and they're going to try him as a starter. Uh, it depends on what else they do with the rotation, and maybe Chapman just tells them he doesn't want to do it again. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if they at least thought about it again. Um, and Price does seem like the kind of manager who puts some value on things that Dusty Baker did not. Right. Well, yeah, it is a little bit awkward, right, when the player doesn't want to do it. I mean, maybe he can right. be talked into it, right, but uh, you want him to want it. Yeah, I think the thing with Chapman is you have to give him – you have to let him see why it's good for him, right? So he has success as a closer, and the easy thing is to just say, well, I'm good at this. Why should I change? But if you can convince him, you know, maybe monetarily and say <laughs> the, be- the best closers in baseball make 10 to $12 million a year, maybe $15 million. Uh, if you're Mariano Rivera or something, uh, the best starters in baseball make $25 million a year. Uh, if you are a starter, you can double your wealth. And, you know, that, that might be a, a way to get through to him and say, give it a try. Yeah, right. Well, okay, so those are two. Uh, you, you also wrote about the Tim Lincecum sign. I think, um, uh, I forget the precise number at the moment, but the, we had Tim Lincecum, or I should say the crowd had Tim Lincecum, at maybe uh, two years, forty million over three. Forty million over three, and you had said, eh, "I don't care for him at that price necessarily." Right. Uh, of course, um, what the what the Giants did, like literally that afternoon, uh, was to to sign him for two thirty five, which right. is is more is more per year. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you you indicate that that maybe I don't know if it's necessarily 
a silver lining, but it indicates that um, the, the the things for which teams will pay, perhaps. Are changing, yeah. yeah. Uh, so my piece, I think, you know, it was not a defense of the Tim Lincecum signing. In, in I wouldn't have given him $35 million over two years. I think that probably is an overpay. Uh, I think they probably could have spent that money better. I, I don't think he's going to live up to this contract. Uh, but I think it, it is a commentary on kind of where the market's headed, right? So, like, for years, I mean, Dip's theory at this point is 15 years old. Uh, you know, this is not a new concept anymore uh, that, you know, walks, strikeouts, home runs, or ground balls are better predictors of the future than ERA. And this is a thing that has been well discussed and, and re- regularly discussed on fan graphs. Uh, and I think, you know, we're seeing that there, there are more teams in baseball who think this way and are evaluating pitchers based on uh, the things that we know pitchers can control that predict the future uh, with some reliability. And they're, and they're moving away from things like ERA and win-loss record. And, you know, we saw this last winter with Granke and Honorable Sanchez and Edwin Jackson and Ryan Dempster uh, and Kyle Loesch getting basically rejected by the entire uh, entirety of Major League Baseball until March. Um, I think what we're, we're, we're seeing is that, you know, teams don't really put a huge emphasis on ERA the way they used to. It's certainly still a factor. It's not like ERA is completely dead and gone, uh, but it's not the number one driver of what a pitcher is going to get anymore, and I think it's an interesting paradigm shift that, that people following baseball are going to have to make. I think in the in the wake of Linscombe signing, I probably saw 10 tweets from well-known baseball writers saying, this is the biggest contract anyone's ever gotten with an ERA of five over the last couple of years or four and a half, or how could the Giants give a pitcher with an ERA this high that much money? That's stupid. I think if that's the end of your analysis, you're, you're, you're behind and you're not going to understand the free agent market anymore because teams aren't valuing pitchers solely by ERA. Okay. All right. Hey, Dave Cameron, uh, it appears that you've fulfilled your obligation uh, to this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Unless, unless there's something we missed. Did I miss something? Did I miss something big? I don't think so. I think we we have covered all our bases. We nailed it down. Okay, yeah. Well, maybe we'll do it again on Monday or Tuesday, something like that. Probably Monday, because there will be a World Series Game Five that night, and there's a chance that could be a deciding game. So there's a chance that the World Series could be over. Yeah, slim chance. I don't think either. I don't think the Red Sox are sweeping. Okay. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure the Cardinals are not sweeping. I would bet a lot of money on that. Like all, all, yeah, like everything you all, have. All, all of the money. All of the money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're smart, smart, smart investment. Yeah. That is, uh, that is, uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Okay, I'm Carson Tazuli. Not, uh, yeah, I get, you know, a, a fixture, a begrudging fixture at Fangraphs. I mean, not begrudging on my account, but on the account of the ownership. And, uh, this has been, this has been Fangraphs Audio.